to this edition of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Ryan, Director of Communications with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. Our focus today is on treatment options for cervical cancer, so we'll talk about the different approaches to treatment and what the patient experience is like. We're very fortunate that Dr. Kathleen Moore, the University of Oklahoma Stevenson Cancer Center, is spending some time chatting with us today. Dr. Moore is an associate professor in the section of gynecologic oncology. She also directs the TSET Phase I program, Oklahoma's only Phase I clinical trials program, and we're going to take advantage of that and talk to her in just a bit about the role of clinical trials in developing new treatment options. So I want to ask about some practical advice for patients, things like what are the questions a patient especially if someone newly diagnosed with cervical cancer, should be asking the medical team, what, what are some of the topics that they really should be covering? Cervical cancer is a relatively uncommon cancer in the United States. It's a very, very common cancer outside, you know, in the developing world where there's about half a million cases and unfortunately about a quarter million deaths. But in the United States, because of screening, it's about 12,000 cases per year, uh, which is pretty small. And so one of the things that I think is really important when someone's newly diagnosed with cervix cancer is they get treated at a facility that takes care of a fair number of patients with cervix cancer. Uh, because the, for cervix cancer, I, mean, I think this is true for a lot of cancers, but it's very true for cervix cancer, you get one shot to cure cervix cancer. So you have to do it right the first time. You have to make the right decisions, you have to get the right surgery or radiation, and and so that's critically important. So if someone's newly diagnosed with cervix cancer, even though there may be a pretty community hospital nearby, they need to go someplace where the physicians take care of cervix cancer and know what they're doing in order to have the best chance of cure. Okay. Uh, when you say that you only get one shot at it, so would you elaborate on that a bit? So if it if you if it's not done correctly, does that just mean more procedures drawing the, drawing it out, or what what are the implications there? I mean, the, the implications are that if you know if cervix cancer recurs, the vast majority of the time, it is not curable, with a minor minor exception. Um, for for patients who recur uh, just real locally, sometimes we can cure those, but most people don't recur that way. And so when it comes back, it is no longer curable. So when we see patients who had curable cervix cancers or potentially curable cervix cancers who got substandard therapy, that breaks our heart because you never really can know what would have happened, but at least you would have liked them to have gotten the best therapy up front to try and prevent these recurrences. These are young, in general, young women with families. So you know, it's just a, it's heartbreaking to have people in their 20s and 30s and 40s with incurable disease. And even though we've, and I think we'll talk about this, even though there has been a lot of research and more finally, I think pharmaceutical companies are, really finally interested in developing novel drugs for cervix cancer patients, we have improved somewhat uh, in terms of how we treat recurrent cervix cancer, but there isn't this long line of therapies that, you know, keeps patients alive for years and years. The prognosis is pretty dismal 
and, and we just have to be honest about that. So patients need to get the right therapy up front in order to have the best chance of cure. And that so, comes from it being treated at experienced centers. So talk a bit about the current approaches to treat cervical cancer and how do oncologists and gynecologists determine which therapies to use or which combination of therapies to use? Well, at initial presentation, it really depends on the stage of the disease, and stage refers sort of simplistically to where the cancer is and where it is not, and how, and in cervix cancer also, how big is the cancer? So for women who present with stage one cervix cancer, which means the cervix, or the cancer is confined to the cervix, it hasn't spread out from the cervix into other parts of the pelvis, uh, and, and if the cancer is of a kind of smallish size, less than four to five centimeters, then usually what we will do is what's called a radical hysterectomy, which is very different than sort of the hysterectomy women get for all sorts of non-cancer reasons. The much bigger surgery is we have to get margins of normal tissue around the cancer to ensure that we get it all out. And when we do that, the expectation is patients who are selected for that surgery, you know, we've done imaging and other uh, investigations, the expectation is that that will be a curative surgery and that hopefully they won't need any additional therapy after that. Sometimes when you do that surgery, and we'll also take out lymph nodes at the time of that surgery, we'll find microscopic spread of disease, and then those patients will need uh, some radiation, uh, plus or minus some chemotherapy after the surgery to try and increase their chances of cure. And actually, the chances of cure with that are very high. Um, you know, in the depending on the number of lymph nodes, you know, it gets a little bit complicated. But with one or two lymph nodes that have been removed, um, the chances of cure are very high. You know, over 80, probably approaching 90 percent. For Patients who have stage one disease, but the cervical cancer tumor is very big, so it hasn't spread in the pelvis, but it's just really big. Um, sometimes we'll do that radical hysterectomy in that setting, but really almost probably 70% of the time we're going to find things on the final pathology that make us feel like that patient will need radiation after the surgery. So a lot of people, a lot of practitioners will decide to do what's called primary radiation where they do not remove the uterus and cervix, but they radiate it for curative intent with some chemotherapy. And that, the likelihood of cure by doing that as compared to a surgery and then radiation are equivalent. So there's not a higher risk of failure by not taking the uterus out in that setting because the radiation is different. Um, and so that, that um, decision often is one of the biggest um, kind of points of confusion that patients have. And even at higher stages, they really don't understand and are frustrated by the fact that we don't take the uterus out. Like they want the uterus and cervix taken out. Just be done with and it. They want to be done with it. And so, you know, in, in the case of a very large cervix tumor or if the cervix cancer has spread 
in the pelvis, you know, it kind of grows out into the surrounding tissues and it can grow out to the pelvic sidewall. Um, and that's stage two and three disease. You know, in those situations, we always do radiation and chemotherapy with really no plan to take out the uterus. Um, and that, you know, and again, patients get really frustrated. I have lots of second opinions that come in and they're just angry that someone never took the uterus out and if only they had, this wouldn't have come back. And, and, and I understand absolutely why folks think that, but it's really not true. Um, we, you know, when we radiate with the cervix um, left in place, with the uterus and cervix left in place, you can kind of think of it um, like, uh, kind of like, um, like a pear sitting in the middle of a bowl. So the pear is the uterus and cervix, and the bowl is the pelvic floor. And you can imagine, you know, maybe some other fruits around the the pear. So if you if all the fruits around the pear have cancer in them, and you go in there and you take out the pear and kind of mess up the location of the other fruits, and then you radiate it, you don't know where the cancer is anymore because you've disrupted the anatomy of the pelvis. And that's what radiation for cervix cancer is based on, is knowing where the cancer is now and what are the lymph node channels and what are the blood vessel channels that carry the cancer you know, to the sidewall of the pelvis. And so that's how the radiation oncologists know where to focus their beam uh, to get not only the cervix cancer, you know, that would be the pair, but also the stuff to the side of it. So when you take the um, when you take the center out and mess up the anatomy, we lose the ability to cure patients with radiation because the cancer has been sort of moved in places that the radiation oncologist can't see. So you actually harm people by by trying to take out the uterus and cervix when they have more advanced disease. And unfortunately, we see that happening um, more than it should, um, where people have obvious advanced disease and they come in somewhere bleeding and someone tries to do an emergency hysterectomy and cuts through the cancer to get the uterus out. And that really markedly diminishes the chance of cure for that patient. Um, down the road, so that upsets us. So I think that's really where making sure you're being taken care of by someone who knows how to take care of cervix cancer will help give the patient confidence that what they're hearing is correct, because this is someone that does this, and they can explain you know, why it is that we do what we do. But that's one of the biggest, I hear that all the time. Um, so as one of the clinicians who does take care of these patients with cervical cancer, do you think we have the kind of therapies that we that we really need to adequately treat these patients? Well, in the front line, you know, I think in the front line we do. You know, I think the um, we really know who should get a radical hysterectomy. We're good at that, and we know, uh, and we've gotten much better with. Um, better radiation technologies. Our radiation oncology, oncology partners, especially those that take care of a lot of cervix cancer, have really, I think, moved the field forward in terms of delivering high-quality radiation with less toxicity, which is key. 
so I think in the front line, we're, we're doing well uh, in terms of having therapies that benefit patients. You know, I think questions that, um, that still need to be answered, there's, you know, a population of patients who get absolutely the right therapy, give it in the right uh, time frame by the right people, and they still recur. Uh, you know, and so you know, why does that happen, and can we identify those patients up front, and is there something we can do differently to prevent that recurrence? That, that sort of research is going on right now uh, with a number of clinical trials, you know, currently adding things like um, uh, various immune modulators to chemotherapy and radiation to high-risk patients who are at high risk for failure. And then there's patients who, you know, have um, what we call local regionally advanced disease, that, that type of disease that is not amenable to a hysterectomy but still is being treated for cure with radiation, and there's some people that don't need the addition of chemo. Like, all they need is the radiation, and they would do, they would be cured and just fine. We can't really identify those patients yet, so we probably over-treat a, a proportion of patients with chemotherapy with their radiation, and then there's a group of patients who need more. So I think, you know, we're still trying to fine-tune and really individualize the best therapy for the individual patient. Um, and those studies are just hard to do, again, because there's not a lot of cervix cancer in the United States, so doing trials is a little bit difficult. Um, but I think we're doing pretty well there. When patients present with disease that has spread outside the pelvis, so maybe they have lymph nodes in their chest or cervix cancer that has metastasized to their lungs or liver or bone, those patients... Um, or patients who recur uh, after their frontline therapy, we treat with chemotherapy. Um, and that chemotherapy is a combination of drugs called paclitaxel, cisplatin, or carboplatin. Um, sometimes we substitute that. And a targeted therapy called bevacizumab, which is a drug that targets how tumors make blood vessels for themselves. That study was published a few years ago through the, um, uh, the NCTN, so it was an um, NCI-sponsored study, and actually demonstrated that the addition of bevacizumab, that's also called Avasta, that's the commercial name, improved overall survival for patients with recurrent or um, advanced stage cervix cancer. And so that was a big move forward for our patients and has become the standard of care. So we do have a good therapy in that line, but it's not curative. And so, you know, the average, the what we call the median overall survival, so the average overall survival for patients that fall into that category is about 15 months if you look at that trial. And when patients progress off of that regimen, there really is just a dearth of effective therapies there. And that's really where there's a lot of research going on, but nothing has really risen to the top yet. It's something that is going to step in in that space. But we really need things in that space because, again, there are often very young women with, you know, not that we don't care about older women, that's not what I'm saying, but you know, these are patients who could handle additional therapy if we had other good things to offer them, and there's just not a lot there. 
Okay. <clears throat> you mentioned targeted therapies. Would you just really quickly explain the difference between targeted ther therapy and chemotherapy? So when we talk about chemotherapy, we're generally using that term to talk about cytotoxic chemotherapy, traditional chemotherapies. So those are drugs that act through a variety of uh, mechanisms to target uh, to target cancers, and, and in general, they're targeting cells that are growing fast. Um, so they're not specific to the cancer. They go everywhere in your body, um, and they are going to target cells that are rapidly growing, which is what cancer cells do, but that's also kind of what your bone marrow does. That's why you see you know, your white count drop during chemotherapy. It's what your hair follicles do. It's why people lose their hair. Um, so it so you get some of those um, toxicities that happen because the chemotherapy is affecting other parts of the body, not just the cancer. Targeted therapies are trying to target, um, you know, it's sort of a broad term. Targeted therapies are targeting something specific, and it could be something specific to the cancer. Uh, that would be a truly kind of targeted therapy or just maybe targeting a specific pathway. So when I talk about bevacizumab the, um, or Avastin, as it's more commonly known, that's targeting something called vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, which is a molecule that signals um, blood vessel growth and other sorts of um, pathways that encourage cancer growth. So you're targeting to that molecule. Um, other places in other cancers like, for example, in breast cancer, every breast cancer patient has their tumor looked at, and you look at it to see if it has estrogen receptors and progesterone receptors, and if there's amplification of something called HER2. And if you do or don't have each of those things in your tumor, it determines your therapy. So if someone has um, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, then they're going, their therapy is going to be a targeted therapy against that, you know, an aromatase inhibitor, tamoxifen, you know, that class of drugs. If they have HER2 amplification, they're going to get Herceptin. So those are targeted therapies to something that's in the tumor. So you're targeting something abnormal in the cancer that is um, hopefully responsible for why that cancer is acting badly. So if you block it, you slow the cancer down or prevent its growth. In cervix cancer, and actually in a lot of gyne gynecologic cancers, we haven't found a lot of those targets yet that are really reliable markers for drugs that we should use. We've At ASHA, we have spent much of the last 12 years talking about prophylactic HPV vaccines, those designed to prevent infections and diseases. But I'm curious what the future might hold regarding therapeutic vaccines or really other treatment innovations to actually treat cervical diseases. So where are we in research with cervical cancer treatment options? So you know, we've talked, there's, there's some research going on with the targeted therapies. I think the, probably the biggest emphasis right now, and there are a number of trials, big trials for cervix cancer, uh, recurrent cervix cancer open and then planned uh, to open in this year, really focusing on immunotherapy and a variety of different types of immunotherapy. So a number of them are using the same drugs that we already have FDA approvals for in other cancers, uh, pembrolizumab and nivolumab and atezolizumab and avolumab, the 
anti-PD-1, PD-L1 monoclonal antibodies. There have been a number of small cervix cancer studies in recurrent disease looking at those drugs, which are kind of miraculous in certain tumors, melanoma and lung, uh, for example, Merkel cell. Um, and they have a nice signal in cervix cancer. The response rates are kind of 17 to 20% range in recurrent, recurrent disease, where we usually see things in the 10% range. So um, I think that's a good signal. Uh, I think a lot of us believe probably combinations make more sense, and there's a lot of scientific background behind what you would combine with an immune, they're called immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, either chemotherapy or the drug uh, Avastin that we talked about, and then some other options as well. Uh, so those studies are coming uh, and are interesting and will be open across the United States. They're big phase three studies. So again, I would encourage if folks have recurrent disease and they've seen chemotherapy already, really seek out a center that has some of these trials open uh, so you can get access to them. Because when those drugs work, it's pretty amazing. Um, there are other sort of immune therapies that are also very interesting at, um, at the National Cancer Institute. Uh, there are a series of, in, uh, a, a team of investigators looking at uh, engineered T-cell therapy for patients with cervix cancer. And basically what that means is they take a piece of the patient's tumor, like a, they have to do a little surgery to get a chunk of tumor, and they isolate the immune cells in the tumor that are there. There may not be very many, but they isolate them, those immune cells that are already kind of seemingly primed to fight the cancer, and then they grow, they expand them, like grow them out so they have millions and millions of them and engineer them to be more potent and then give them back to the patient. So you're kind of taking the patient's own immune system and trying to magnify it mm-hmm. and then giving it back. So, and that's a really, I didn't do the procedure justice at all. It's a very complicated um, process to do that for patients and it hasn't really uh, quite made it to prime time, you know, to open it lots of different centers. Uh, but that, they've had some pretty remarkable responses in a few patients and are doing some more studies there. Um, so I think that that's something to be watchful for. Uh, of course, CAR-T is becoming more widespread for hematologic malignancies, so more and more centers uh, are opening chimeric angiogen therapies. Uh, and as that gets more commonplace, trials for CAR-T in cervix cancer have already been proposed. So it's another kind of um, intense immune modification therapy, if you will, that we may have open in, in, patient, in, in trials for patients. But again, those are, those are a little bit farther out. They, they are not easy to do. They require a lot of collaboration with transplant, transplant uh, hematologic transplant physicians because of the kind of induction therapy that patients have to undergo before they get the cells back. So none of these are, these latter two things are easy. But, you know, if they work and we get good at them, then, then we're going to use them. So I think there's some exciting things on the horizon that people are studying for cervix cancer. So I think there's a lot of reason for optimism. It's just nice that there's so much attention to cervix cancer right now and people care about it and are developing drugs. We haven't had that in 
decade. So that it, that is encouraging, and and I you know, it, I understand that it can be difficult finding enough patients for clinical trials. And would do do you have any suggestions for those who might be considering a research study? You know, I think um, if you're considering a research study, you can always go on to uh, clinicaltrials.gov and then search for cervix cancer, and it will kind of give you a bunch of open trials, and it will tell you where they're open. So you can kind of look for places that are near where you live. Uh, you know, ask your physician. You know, I think there's um, often people being treated at community hospitals, and there's an academic facility um, with clinical trials open near them that they can be referred to for a second, you know, kind of a second opinion or a clinical trials uh, consult. Um, so I think those are the the, the two things. We, um, you know, at our cancer center, we have posters everywhere that say "Ask me about clinical trials." So we want our patients to ask us about clinical trials. Um, I think patients need to advocate for them for themselves a little bit sometimes to try and get the best therapies for them for themselves. We've been chatting with Dr. Kathleen Moore of the Stevenson Cancer Center at the University of Oklahoma, and I really appreciate you for taking time to explore these issues. Clinical trials can seem a little intimidating for the uninitiated like me. So thank you for lifting the veil, so to speak. I think that was really enlightening, and uh, sounds like uh, the, the, and clinicaltrials.gov sounds like a great resource for anyone who really wants to read up more. Probably not. I, I'm, I believe in that site. They can not only search for trials, but you can really read more about the whole process of how clinical trials work, if I recall Absolutely. correctly. Absolutely, yep. yep. Yeah, very good. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Morna. Uh, hopefully, I uh, hope I can uh, uh, convince you to chat with us again sometime, because this was really fantastic. Absolutely. And thanks to everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast. We'll have more to come, so check back often. We're online at ashasexualhealth.org. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at InfoAsha. You can also sign up on the website to receive our updated emails. And when we develop new resources like this podcast with Dr. Moore, uh, you will, you'll be the first to know. So until next time, this is Fred Wine for ASHA. So long, everybody. 